long-term regular use of Botox, is it strange that a client would require a higher dose? I would say no. It's something you will notice in a small percentage of your patients over time. And I'm not sure exactly why this happens, but it seems to be that some people develop a degree of resistance the more they use Botox, while others seem to get longer and longer each time. Your client just might be in the unhappy group of getting less over time instead of more. It's most likely to do with the immune system, picking up some element of the process where the muscle is being relaxed by the botulinum toxin and dampening the effects. The only thing you can do is either give your patient a break, and this can be as long as a year between having product, they won't be very happy with that solution, or you can try switching your product to a different brand, and I find that helps in about 50% of cases that they will get a better result on a different toxin, or you can give a higher dose until that eventually becomes too expensive or isn't worth it for you or the patient. But those are the three main options that we have when Botox stops working so well. So once you've diluted your botulinum toxin, how long can you leave it in your clinic fridge before it no longer works? Now this is very interesting. If you look at the manufacturer's guidance, they would say 24 hours. You've got to use all the product or discard it within 24 hours. Now this isn't actually based on the efficacy of that product. It's based simply on a good principle that once you've opened something, don't leave it around. It's safer for your patients if you just get rid of it and open a fresh one for the next one. Now, of course, the stuff is way more expensive than gold and we don't want to waste it. So many people end up asking the question of how long can I use this product for? This has actually been tested in multiple studies and it's actually surprisingly resilient. So I've seen studies where it still seems to work up to 95% as well as new botulinum toxin, even six weeks after it's been diluted and left in the fridge. I actually had an injection myself with a product that I'd left out of the fridge on a hot summer's weekend, and it worked amazingly well for four months. So these products are more resilient than we are told they are, uh, but that is something that you should look at the data for, and I wouldn't build a practice around leaving stuff in the fridge for six weeks. But when it does need to happen, it's probably effective and safe as long as you've followed all your normal safety and sterility protocols. Uh, can it go bad and like cause any problems or is it just not gonna work? If you use bacteriostatic saline and sterile injection technique, I don't think there's a high risk of causing infection with a vial that's six weeks old that's been maintained in a good clinical environment with bacteriostatic saline. Why, when you are injecting more superficially in the corrugators, do you feel more resistance to that injection? This is something I remember noticing when I first started injecting too. Some places the product flows in easily and others you're pushing a little bit harder and occasionally it's actually very difficult to inject. What's going on in the situation? Now, if you're injecting corrugators well, you should be injecting relatively deep medially and becoming more superficial until the insertion point just above the mid pupillary line. Now, once you approach the insertion point, your needle is actually moving into the dermis. You are no longer purely intramuscular. You are now in the fibers where they are meshed in with the dermis, which is a much more dense area. So effectively, it is harder for the tissue to expand and allow the product in. This is effectively like injecting into a balloon, but the balloon is at its maximum. There just isn't room for any more, so it, it's harder to inject. But when you're deeper in the belly of the muscle, there's just more room in those fibers for the muscle to expand and to accept that product that you're injecting. So that is why it is harder to inject when you're more superficial in the tail of the corrugator. Do I use different brands of botulinum toxin and how do I choose between them? Well, if I'm honest, the way I chose initially, like many practitioners, was first on price. I chose the one that I believed would work, that was licensed to use, but was also cheaper than the others. 
Now with experience, I started to realize that some patients were resistant. So I would switch to using different products. And as I started to use different products, I did experience some nuanced differences between the products. I quite like the way some are diluted, gave me more control with the needle with certain dilutions. And I also found that some seemed a little bit more reliable. In particular, I noticed that patients who were resistant with one brand would quite often work with another brand. And over the course of time, this started to influence me to choose different products as my primary product. Now, this is very anecdotal, uh, but I, I find a little bit more reliability with Allergan's Botox than I do with the other products. Extremely anecdotal. Um, I don't think there's a vast difference between them, though. I think for the average injector starting out, they're going to be quite similar to use to the point of the main difference being price. So that is one way you can consider buying your product. Which one do you suspect gives your patients the best effect for the least cost? Now, the other element to this is that you do actually get different levels of support from different companies. They have different strategies about how to support injectors. When you start to use different products, you are actually buying into an ecosystem that can give you various amounts of support in different ways. So you should research each drug company, see what else they provide as a service, Make sure they know that you're buying their product and you may find that some give you better support than others. How do you avoid brow asymmetry when treating the labella or the frontalis? To understand this, you need to remind yourself about what muscles are actually controlling the position of the brow. They're actually in a dynamic contest between all the muscles. So the labella pulls medially and slightly down, the procerus pulls the medial aspect down, orbicularis oculi pulls the brow down, frontalis pulls the brow up. Probably the most important muscle to understand is the frontalis. And when you're treating the labella, you have a small risk of affecting the frontalis, particularly laterally where it's most sensitive to causing asymmetry. But also if you're treating the frontalis asymmetrically, you're going to get asymmetrical brows. The key to understanding this is how much muscle are you leaving untreated in each area of the frontalis. The bigger the area untreated, the more the eyebrow will be supported or even lifted. While the smaller that untreated area gets, the more chance of it slumping downwards or looking heavy, certainly moving less, less easily. And all the injections we do, particularly at the mid-pupillary line and lateral in the forehead, are particularly powerful at causing effects on the eyebrow because that is the area of the frontalis that most directly affects the position of the eyebrow. So we need to be particularly neat, make sure that we are symmetrical, and injecting at the right depths, avoiding hitting the frontalis where we don't want to and neatly injecting it symmetrically when we do want to. I would say if you put all your attention on the neatness of your injections around the frontalis, that will reduce your risk by say 70% of causing asymmetry. And the other 30% is what happens with your corrugator muscle and the orbicularis oculi. Be neat, be precise, and you shouldn't have too much of a problem. How do you know how many units to inject so that you don't over or under treat? These days, in most areas of the face, we have a licensed dose. So in the forehead, it's 20 units, the gabella is 20 units, and the orbicularis oculi is 24 units. And this gives you a ballpark to start to think about how much you should inject for your individual patients. With experience, you'll start to be able to look at your patient and decide whether each area of their face is either very strong, medium, or weak. And once you understand that, you can use that to estimate your dose. If someone has a very strong labella, you're probably going to use a bit more than the licensed dose. So that could be 28 to 32 units, even higher in some people. While if they're very weak, you might decide to use 12 units and get the same result. So this is how I tend to look at it, which is take a look at the licensed dose as a rough median, and then consider people who are likely weaker than that and people who are stronger and adjust your dose accordingly. 
So how do you inject a very small forehead without causing a brow drop and preferably with causing a brow lift? So this is a really challenging situation because a small forehead means a small frontalis muscle, which means treating a little bit is likely to cause a drop and it means there's very little room to make that muscle lift your eyebrows. But the same principles apply as you would for any forehead. You still have to use those principles but adjust the dose accordingly. In practice, what this means is Instead of using a two centimeter safety margin from the eyebrow, which is what I normally teach in a normal sized forehead, which will often leave two thirds of it available to treat, you simply use 50% of the forehead. So this, this still takes up a significant portion, but you'll find only a small area to treat higher up, usually one line of injections. It may be two or three or four injections instead of a double line of injections. And that's usually what happens in a very small forehead. And all that you're doing is leaving more muscle proportionately untreated. But as a, if you compared that forehead to someone with a normal sized forehead, you still see a similar amount of muscle untreated. We're just treating what we can, which is a smaller area because the forehead is smaller. How deep should you inject the depressor angularis oris? So this muscle is running just underneath the hypodermis. So we have skin, a layer of fat, superficial fat pads of the face, and then the muscle. What I recommend you do is palpate that muscle on yourself and on your patients, get them to contract that muscle and start to get an idea of how deep it is under the skin. I know I can feel mine if I contract it, and that gives me an estimation of around five millimeters of depth through the fatty tissue before I'm near that muscle. But obviously different faces are different, so you need to get into the habit of checking your patient's anatomy and deciding on the depth depending on how thick that fat pad is. We're aiming for the muscle, somewhere near the surface of it, it's okay to be within it. I don't really want to be underneath it, so you don't want to be going too deep, but this takes a degree of practice and examination on each patient that you see. If you found that interesting, why don't you drop your own question in for next time? I love a good, interesting question. You can also message me on Instagram and I'll do my best to answer everything for you next time. Yeah, that works, I think. I said next time twice, but it's fine. It's fine.